This is Ben Guest, and this is Benbo's podcast. Today we have a returning guest, Mrs. Torshita Jackson. In our first conversation, Torshita talked about being a black woman and a black mother raising black sons in America. It was maybe the most emotional, intense, and important interview I've ever done. So if you haven't listened to that episode, I can't encourage you strongly enough to do so. In this episode, we start by just talking a little bit about some of the feedback, some of the great feedback that Torshita got from that episode. And then we focus on her career as a journalist. We talk about what it's like writing features, what her process is, and then we talk sports in Mississippi. So Torshita, thanks for coming on again, round two. I think in this conversation, we're going to talk more about writing, editing, journalism. But just wanted to start with asking what kind of feedback you got on the first podcast we recorded. I had an interesting conversation with my son, uh, my oldest son, and we talked about he really had to sit with my feelings about raising him um, and being a black mother to a black son, um, being a mother to a black son. Um, And he, he really hadn't sat with and dealt with how I felt um, and my fears and my thoughts. And so we had a really deep conversation about um, a lot of my responses to things that happened when he was a child, to things that he did, um, that he didn't really understand then. Um, he sees them differently now. We talked about that. But I think the most interesting response, I had a friend who I once worked with, and she said she played it for her her church Bible study group. They have like a little small group Bible study. And she said, um, and she's white, and she said that when it was over, several of the women just kind of sat there. Um, and, and I'm guessing from her age group that they're 30s, early 40s. And she said that she told them, you know, I wanted you to hear this because if we are truly Christians and we are living by the Bible, we need to understand the plight of our neighbor. And we need to understand why this topic is so important to the Black race, the Black community, to Black mothers. We need to truly understand why they are marching in the streets. We need to truly understand why they are protesting because we don't get it. We see a very surface, we have, excuse me, a very surface idea of it and we don't get it. So hearing it from someone we know, someone just like us, a mom, she said she really felt like that made it hit home. Um, Which is interesting with the George Floyd verdict and all all those things happening right now. Um, but I thought that was that was very cool because I I hope I hope and I pray that more more parents, more moms, more people listen to it and really sit with it like that. That's that's so good to hear because I think even either in the description I put or certainly when I started posting on social media, I remember writing. I hope every white American listens to this. And that, I don't know if that was the goal going into the episode that we recorded, but it was certainly a goal that I had afterwards of, I hope white people, white women, white mothers listen to Torshita's story and can start to put themselves in her shoes. So to hear that and to hear that she said, this is a woman just like us, 
um, you know, on a very small scale. That's the goal. Yeah, made me feel good. Good, good, good. Okay, well, let's, we, we don't have to go deep this time. That was a pretty, <laughs> I, I don't know that I'll ever have, ever do a more intense interview than that one, um, or a more important one than that one. But let's talk writing, journalism, that's what you do now. Um, so maybe just tell, tell the listeners what you do and then, then we'll go from there. Um, so I work as a freelance or independent journalist um, and I write for several different uh, news outlets in the state of Mississippi. Um, I have bylines in the Mississippi Free Press, the Jackson Free Press, um, Bash Brothers Media, Mississippi Scoreboard, um, and Chopsports.net. Um, and so essentially, I consider myself a feature writer. Um, a lot of people say feel-good writer, but I like to tell the stories of the people, places, and events in the state of Mississippi, specifically um, those in the sports world, because Mississippi is such a rich state of sports personalities and coaches and athletes and events that sometimes get overlooked because it is kind of small town Mississippi or small Mississippi. So that's what I do now in my quote unquote spare time. <laughs> right, right, quote unquote. Um, so when, you, when you're working on a feature story and you do your first draft, what does that process look like? I've learned to just write. Um, I kind of sit down with a piece um, and generally I've already interviewed a subject and I sit down and I just write. Um, and I leave all the errors in, all the mistakes in, which is very difficult for me because um, for 15 years of my life, I was an English teacher. And so the red squiggly lines on the Google Doc drive me insane. Um, and I have to say that because I feel like it's an important writing process for people to just let, this, let the red line stay. Um, and I just write. Um, and a lot of times it's choppy um, and it's disorganized, but I'm putting all my thoughts on paper. And once I've done that, um, and this is my process, um, I kind of take what I have written and I normally will have create sections. Um, I might write something and then leave a big space and then write something else because it, at that moment, it doesn't sync together well. But once I've looked at that, I kind of have an idea at that point of where I want to go and what I want to write about. And so I take that draft and I create a mind map. And so I sit down and I kind of flesh out the different directions that this story is going to go. Um, and from there, do I want to tell it in chronological order? Uh, do I want to tell it by theme? How do I want to flesh this story out? Um, and that's kind of where I go with that mind map. And then I begin to think about who else can add value to that story? Who else can I talk to? Um, a player or a person who was there or an expert? Um, and where do they fit into this picture? And so for me, kind of that rough draft is part of my planning process. Um, and so once I've done that, and then I kind of go back to revisit where do I want to go with this story? And what do I want to put in? What do I want to leave out? And how do I want to add to it and kind of organize it from there? 
what does a mind map look like? So a mind map for me um, has a big circle in the center, which is my topic or my focal point. Um, so if I were interviewing being guests, being guests would be in the middle of my circle. Um, and from that circle, we branch off smaller circles. So keeping with the being guest example, um, his time in Africa, his time with Mississippi Teacher Corps, um, writing and filmmaking. And so all of these different aspects to being guests that I know. Um, and then where do I want to go with it? Um, for instance, with Mississippi Teacher Corps, do I wanna to talk to people who he worked with at Teacher Corps? Um, or does that even fit into the mold of what I'm trying to do? Am I telling a story about him or am I telling a particular story that maybe that doesn't fit into? Um, writing and filmmaking, is there an expert who can talk about the success or the difficulties of an independent filmmaker or writer? Would that add value? And so I've got these kind of branches. It almost looks like a cell for science people that has this center and then it has these branches and bubbles. And then from those bubbles, other bubbles are squares. Um, so kind of how you will pull it out together. And oftentimes I cut out a part um, because Ben's time in which, you know, just knowing I know about you, of course you tied Mississippi Teach Board to your filmmaking, to your time in Namibia, because I think all of those things really form together, you know, how important it has been to you to tell this story about um, disenfranchisement and um, discrepancies and all of those things um, in education and cultures and all of those things. And I think all those things fit together, but there are some times when those things don't fit together. And so you may X out something. And so that's kind of part of my process. Interesting. So you do, you write a first draft and then mind map it from there. Yes, I'm a little backwards. Um, well, just everybody has their own process, right? <laughs> and that's why, yeah, and that's why I definitely say it's my process, but I do. Um, and part of that is because I found, especially when I interview subjects, that I start with a list of interview questions and it's never a long list, three to five. I'm a great listener. I may have developed that wait time and that they always tell teachers, but I love to listen. I think that's the most important thing when I'm interviewing a subject is to really listen to what it is they're saying because they will tell you their story. And I always find that after I've interviewed someone and I've really heard what they had to say, the story starts to develop itself. Um, and as I'm listening to them, as, as I'm interviewing them, I'm always recording. I try to use two different recording devices. Um, but as I'm listening, my mind starts to write a story. But I also know that if I don't start to get that down on paper, it goes away. It goes away really quickly for me. Um, even with my students, when I revise papers for them, I'll tell them, you know, I'll have this brilliant line, but you need to write it down now because 30 seconds from now it's gone. Um, and so I recognize that about myself. And so that's kind of my process to start getting down my thoughts um, and those things that have popped into my head while I'm interviewing. So yeah, I do kind of have a flipped process. Hmm, it's so interesting though. So there's a couple different, 
questions and directions I want to go. So once you've had the initial interview with your subject, and then from there, um, from there, uh, you do your mind map, how much if you're doing a feature, so so you've done features on Coach Billups, who's a legendary basketball coach in Mississippi, Coach Stribling, who's a legendary coach, basketball coach in Mississippi. Once you did the interview with them and then the mind map, are you thinking about theme? Are you thinking about the greater message you want to communicate to somebody? Or is it more just here's here's the subject and I want to present this subject as accurately as I can? I think both. Um, a lot of times there is a greater theme, um, but sometimes, like in the case of Coach Stribling, he is just intriguing, um, and his story is just amazing. And he will sit with you and tell you. I mean, I think I sat with him for like three hours. Um, but you really, his story in itself is all you need. Um, and then there are times when, you know, there is a bigger thing. Um, for instance, I did a feature on a midwife in the area and it really became more of a piece about how, um, important the midwife used to be and how people have kind of moved away from that importance. But with that move away from midwifery, especially in the black community, you've seen a huge decline in black maternal health rates. And so sometimes you do end up with a theme and then there's sometimes when the subject is just so super interesting, like Coach Drip, that you don't need anything else. You just wanna tell the story so that people know, people can hear what you heard. Um, I wish everyone could sit in the room with Coach Drip. He's amazing just to talk to. Um, so I think that's kind of a twofold thing. And I think that's kind of where you go back. Like for instance, with Coach Strip, when I finished talking to him, I didn't have to talk to anybody else. There was nobody else that I needed to talk to to tell the story of Coach Strip. Whereas when I talked to this midwife, you know, I wanted to talk to someone who um, had used her services. I wanted to talk to people who had been born by midwives in previous generations and how important the midwife was in their community to kind of frame the story of the importance. And then I want to talk to moms who had had difficult births and, and do they feel that, you know, someone advocating for them, someone really focused on them in that moment would have made that birth different. So that's, that's kind of the, the twofold area. And that's the thing with feature writing. Sometimes it's just about the subject and sometimes a deeper thing develops. Do you see an overarching theme or themes to your work? That's an interesting question. I don't, and I think that's because I truly want every story to be very individualized. I, I want every story to be very different. I don't want to tell the same story over and over. And I don't want to tell the same story someone else has told. And I write 
several different things. I write sports over here. I write human interest features over here. I write music and food features over there. So I don't think there's an overarching thing. I will say though that I seem to have a kind of, for each different publication, I kind of fall into a category. And so they kind of fit together. If you read all of my works for this particular publication, then you may see a thing, but just in general, I don't think so. And you mentioned structure earlier. So again, kind of going along with your process, you do this subject interview, then the first draft, then the mind map. And then at some point you start thinking about structure. Um, how do you decide on structure? I think I look at what is the best way to tell the story. Um, and nearly, I mean, 99% of my stories are narrative, even, you know, narrative journalism. Um, so I always want to start with some type of story or something that's going to, you know, really bring my reader into the person of the situation. And then I kind of structure it from there. I don't, you will find very few of my stories that start with data or statistics or those type of things. There's usually a story that draws you in so that you, it kind of hooks you in. You sink your teeth into this person and you become um, curious about what happens to this person. And from there, it is about the best way to tell the story. Um, some stories are best told in chronological order. Um, for instance, the Costria story, you really had to talk about him as a child and what happened to him as a young basketball player going off to college without a suit to understand why Costria had 400 suits in his closet. And so you really need to tell that story chronologically and how he just, no matter where he went, continued to win. Um, and I remember writing that line, and he won there too. And he won there too. And it was like, I kept going through it. And he went to here, and he won. And he went there, and he won there too. Um, and then there are stories where you really want to focus on a single event, um, and you kind of focusing on that event and then you may go back to see how we got there and then go forward to see what happened after. But I, my structure is based entirely on what is the best way to tell this story and to keep the reader invested in the person, in the event, um, and to keep them wanting to read to find out what next. And that's very different for, for different subjects. Um, in my personal opinion, that's very different for different subjects, for different events, for different people. Yeah, I love whether it's journalism, whether it's filmmaking, whatever it is, just storytelling. I love the idea of every story is different and every story is gonna tell itself in its own way. And it's just up to you as the storyteller to, to figure out what's the best way to engage in your case with readers. So one of the benefits I have making a film is I can show rough cuts to people. And a lot of times I don't even need their feedback. I just need to be in the room while they watch it. And I can just tell from their body language when they're engaged and when they're kind of checking out. How do you do that as a, 
as a writer? Um, I have a few people who I generally send once I kind of have it all together um, before I publish it or before I send it to an editor. I have about three people. And it's funny, one of them is my husband, who is not a writer, is not an English person, is not a, I mean, he's math, he's engineering, he, he's not a person who's going to read for fun. But he gives me a really good gauge for whether it's interesting. Because, you know, as readers read things because we like to read. But I always want to target that audience of people who are not just readers. You know, can I draw them in? Are they going to read the story because like, wow, this is really interesting. So he's a great gauge for that. Um, and then, of course, I have the English friend who I'm like, hey, check this out. What do you think? Um, she's great for, you know, I think if you move this around, you know, structurally, you may, you know, think about moving this around. And, and the, none of them are ever you should do this. It's always like, think about this, or I think I'd like this better here. Um, and the third one is, and she's actually a friend of mine who majored in journalism. She doesn't work in journalism, um, but she kind of gives me that journalist aspect. So kind of what you do, um, they're all kind of sworn to secrecy before a piece comes out. Um, and it's never anyone who's involved in the piece. Of course, we don't release to readers. We don't let people who are subject to read the story before it's, before it's, print it but they're kind of my my feedback crew so what are the keys to grabbing a reader immediately i think they have to become invested immediately within the first three four lines they have to become invested in the story whether it's a person or a story or an event it has to be something that they want to read about <clears throat> um I read a story not too long ago about an incident at Ole Miss. Um, I think it was the Chi Omega sorority. They used to do this walk, and there was this really bad accident where several of them were hurt or maimed or killed along the highway. And I remember, like, in the beginning of the story, she is describing the house. And she's describing the house after the accident. And she's, they're all kind of sitting there and they pull mattresses into the room and everybody's just kind of in there together and the house mother is in there. And you don't know at that moment what has happened, but you're drawn into like, why are all these girls in this room sad, pulling mattresses in, what, and then she kind of goes, and in the story, she weaves this, I mean, it's a brilliant story, uh, but she weaves this kind of back and forth. You know, she, she looks, she goes to talk to people who were there, who survived, and she kind of tells the story in this kind of weavy, but I remember being drawn in by, they're in this house, in this room, after it's happened, and they're all kind of just sitting there quietly. Nobody knows what to say, nobody knows what to do. Um, and so I think that's it. I think you have to, readers have to become invested very early in a piece. And I think even if, even if the middle of the piece, because sometimes you need the data, you need the facts, but I think even if the middle of the piece is a lot, is maybe not as 
narrative or interesting if you pull, pull them in the beginning you can hold them through to the end if that makes sense yeah 100 percent. in filmmaking we always say you can you can have a average movie but if you wow them in the end you know that's what they're gonna you you want to you want to draw them in in the beginning and wow them at the end and you can get away with a muddled middle as it were and that's so interesting because i've watched movies and it starts off really good and then it like slows down and you're like okay okay but you're sitting there and i guess i hadn't really thought about that you're sitting there trying to see how it is and so you sit through this very slow like okay this movie is not moving but you're still sitting there because you want to get to the end to know how it ends there was one not too long ago that we watched and i was like okay the middle is terrible but the beginning and the end wonderful can we just cut out the middle so that's interesting i guess i hadn't thought about that i heard a great <clears throat> a great line a great phrase the other day about storytelling and it was something like the king died and then the queen died that's a reciting of events the king died and then the queen died of a broken heart that's a story right so it's it's something about like you were saying earlier on one level you're just explaining the order of events and what happened and maybe you switch the order around that's that's a trick we have as storytellers but it's just here are the events and here's what happened but when you start adding emotion to it or the ability of a reader or a viewer to relate to people in the piece or here's the greater context of why this matters any of those things are powerful in terms of um, making the story relatable and making the story engaging Definitely. And I think that's one of the biggest things. I think people have to connect with a story. Um, very interesting stories. The ones that are the most interesting to me are the ones that I connect with on some level. And, and it doesn't have to be anything that I'm familiar with or related to, but on some level I connect with it. Um, and, and, you know, when you ask me about theme, that may be a theme of my work. I want readers to be able to connect. I want to humanize people. I want people to be able to see that. Some of these people that, I mean, I was a young coach. I remember being wowed by Stribling and Billups and Brent. And, like, they win ball games and people love them and respect them. But then when you sit down and talk to them, I mean, and nearly all of them have very humble beginnings um, and really interesting stories to tell. And you, you really begin to see them as just, I mean, yeah, they are amazing coaches, but they're people. I mean, they have the same fears and beliefs and struggles that the rest of us do. And sometimes when you have people on a bigger stage, you don't get to see that. Um, and so that has been a fun part of my work, getting to really delve into people's lives. And a lot of things that you, there are a lot of things you learn that you don't write, of course. But I think that's been one of the most fun things for me. Just really realize, I mean, I've talked, one of the pieces I wrote was about the 95, 96 Mississippi State football team. And I talked to Richard Williams, who, I'm Basket, like, oh my basketball. gosh. Basketball. Basketball, team. basketball, basketball, men's basketball team. And I talked to 
Richard Williams, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm on the phone with Richard Williams. Like I texted my husband, I'm on the phone with Richard Williams. And he was just, I mean, he was so nice and sweet. And so I think feature writing, narrative writing, humanizes people that we sometimes see as larger than life, which is a cool thing about being a feature writer. 100%, 100%. I mean, it's, you're approaching things from a humanistic perspective, I think, of just, hey, we're all human. We all struggle. We all have doubts. Um, we've all dealt with, with loss and we've all dealt with wins. We've all dealt with whatever. And um, we're just trying to figure it out, you know? I think that's one of the reasons why people love I don't know, it was a People magazine or some magazine used to like publish photos of celebrities like getting coffee or something, which you think would be the most mundane, boring thing because they're not dressed up and you know they're just candid shots from across the street or whatever. But people love that because it's like, oh, they they, you know, just doing the same shit I'm doing. Definitely. All right, I have a question about Coach Strib. So um, Coach Stribling was when I was coaching in the Delta, which is in the early 2000s high school, he was at Mississippi Valley State and was a legendary coach at Valley and in the SWAC and in Mississippi. And you said, you kept writing the sentence, anyone there too, anyone there too. What, what is it about Coach Strib? Everywhere he goes, he wins. Why, what is it, what, what's, the, what's the magic? I think that Coach Strip has this innate ability to get his players to buy in to him. Like system, yes, but him as a person. Um, he's very personable, but any of his players that you talk to will tell you he's tough. He's tough, he expects a lot, he has high expectations, but he loves them dearly. And like, they know that and they understand that. Um, and so they buy into him. And they build this like love for him and they play for him. And I mean, he, I mean, he knows the X's and O's most definitely, but I think it's just who he is and his personality. He's able to build teams of players or athletes who truly believe in each other and him and what they're doing. And because of that, they are successful. <clears throat> and I think that I think that transcends all of the off-season training, all the X's and O's, all of the offensive plays and the defensive plays. I think it's really about relationships with him and the relationships that he's able to build and the confidence he's able to um, build, I guess, for lack of a better word, in teams that he's coached. And I mean, he's from high school through college. Yeah, there's, uh, coaching is, is such a fascinating subject to me. And I know it is to you as well as you also coached a whole bunch of sports. Um, when you, especially these days in the US, sports are so much about individual achievement. Team sports are so much about individual achievement. And of course, if you have a high school team, every player on that team, um, that player's parents, grandparents, close family, they're only concerned with that one player. They're not concerned with 
the overall team, except how the team success can help that player. If you as a coach can get those 12 individuals to buy into something bigger than themselves and to play for something bigger than themselves, now I think you're really cooking, cooking with oil, as they say. So it sounds like Strib, Coach Strib does that. You know, I worked with um, great coach, Mississippi High School coach, Shay Jackson. She won a couple championships at Ryan. She coached Valencia McFarland. Um, but Coach Jackson would tell players, this is a team and on this team, everyone has a role. And if you accept your role and you buy into your role, everyone is successful. And I remember the last, maybe the last year that we were there, we were able to almost go five in, five out, which is unheard of for a high school team. And it was not, I mean, they were talented. They were, they were talented. I don't take that away from them. But the reason that they were almost able to play five different players and keep that same intensity was because everybody bought into their role. And so even if you weren't the star shooter, you knew what your role was. And so you went in and you did your thing. And so the play never wavered or suffered because you didn't, there was no star per se. It was a team and it was a team effort and everybody could do their role. Um, and they were an awesome team. And that's something that kind of stuck with me and I took with me. Um, from working with her, one of the many lessons I took from working with her. And that's one of the things that I, I always told my girls from that point on, if everyone accepts their role, if you are a rebounder, you be the best rebounder ever. Don't go out there shooting three. It's not your role. Um, and I remember like my first year coaching middle school out in Richland, I had a young lady and her, she was in my starting five and her whole entire role, I, I love jump defenses, was to be my one. Like if I ran a box in one or I ran triangle in two, you are my defensive guru. I don't care if you don't ever shoot a shot. I don't care if you don't ever rebound a shot, but I need you to know where that girl is at all times. That is your whole response. And I mean, she would play in the entire game. And, um, Somebody was like, I mean, she never shoots. She never, I don't need her to do that. That is not what I need her to do. What she does well is make sure that that person doesn't shoot and doesn't score. And that is her like immense, tremendous value to my team. And so I think that's a hard concept right now when everybody's looking out for self. And I think there's a missing piece um, everybody wants to score. Everybody wants to be the star. Everybody wants to be in the spotlight. But your spotlight may not be the three. It may not be the drive. It may not be. And you can add immense value to your team by doing something else. Like how important are offensive rebounds? How important are defensive rebounds? So I think there's something that's missing from the team concept. And I don't think it's missing because of coaches. I think it's just the generational change and the focus on being a star. And, you know, I have my own thoughts on AAU, but we won't go into that. But I think AAU has played a part in that. Oh yeah, for sure. Because it's all individual statistics driven 
in the hopes of, you know, everybody thinks their child's going to be an NBA player. Um, but I love that idea about roles and defining roles clearly from the coach's side. I mean, that goes back to what you were saying about Coach Strib and being a great communicator. And that's something as a young coach that I didn't do and didn't think about doing. It wasn't even on my radar. You know, you're so caught up with what play are we going to run or what defense are we going to run? But when you define roles clearly, then that player knows how they're going to be judged by the coaches. It's not, I need to go out and score 30 points. It's I need to get 12 rebounds or I need to set six really good screens or I need to play great defense on the other team's star player. And once you know how you're going to be judged um, or evaluated, not judged, evaluated by coaches, then you can really focus on perfecting your role of being a superstar in your role. And we would sit down, we would have team meetings, individual meetings, like, okay, this is your thing. And I, I always think back to, we had a little girl, my, my was, I don't know, four foot 11. <laughs> she was like the smallest little, and she was my example for the longest time with my, with my girls about size does not matter. It's all about heart. Um, and we were playing Richland. Richland had Kendra Grant. I mean, Kendra Grant was, she was it that year. I think she, she went to state. I mean, she was awesome. Kendra was 5'8", maybe. Um, maybe taller, 5'9". But I think Maya was the littlest thing on the floor. And her job was to guard Kendra. She was the boxing one that year. We were at Raymond. And Maisha, I mean, she was literally like on her tiptoes with her hand straight up to like keep this girl from getting the ball. And um, Kendra scores two points and we go into overtime and Maya comes up to the bench and she is bawling I mean she is crying and I go Maisha what's wrong and she was like I wasn't supposed to let her score and I had the stat book in my hand I will never forget this and I go Maisha that's the first two points she scored this entire game and she wow. looks at me and I'm like go back and go to work and she was like yes ma'am and I mean it, it <laughs> It was, I mean, she, I mean, she hit the shot, true enough, but I'm like, you have held this girl for four quarters. I think the girl finished that game with four points, like legitimately. Um, and so, but she understood her role and she accepted it. And it was hard work for her. I mean, you talk to four foot 11, she might've been five foot, uh, might be stretching it. But I mean, she's literally on her tiptoes with her hands to, trying to touch the gym floor to guard her. And she did it. I mean, she was good at it. And so, like, they understood their roles. They understood, you know, where, you know, this is what you do in the press. Um, we had one girl, she was long, long arms, long legs. Yeah, you're going to be the front of this diamond because your arms are so long. They're intimidating if you're standing still. Um, and I, I think that did take a lot of the pressure off of them to be anything other than what they needed to be, which I think was integral to their success that year. There was no pressure to be the scorer. There was no pressure to, you know, everybody knew their role and everybody could kind of fall into that. And it also kind of kept down the competition because now we're not competing to shoot threes. We're not competing to score because that's not what coach needs me to do. 
and and Shay was great with relationship building too. I mean, she built those relationships with those girls. They believed in her. Heck, I was her assistant. I believed in her. I still think she can move heaven and earth. Like she called me right now, like, what you want? What you need? What you you know? And so, I mean, that when you have coaches like that who can inspire, I mean, just sitting on the bench. I mean, I'm I'm an adult and I was inspired. I'm so I can only imagine what the kids feel like. I think that makes a big difference. Um, but I also think when we talk about things like AAU, and a lot of the kids play with these same coaches year after year, but that's time spent in the gym. Like you develop those relationships because you are with these children. Like you are with them after school, on weekends, in the summer, Thanksgiving break, Christmas break, on the bus, you're with them. And so you learn who they are. You learn their perks, their personalities, what makes them sad, what makes them happy, what's going on in their life. And you're, you're able to really build those relationships. And I think those are really important. And I think that's a missing piece when you own your coaching that kid one month out of the summer or two months out of the summer and you're trying to get them looked at. Yeah, and you're trying to get looked at too. Right. I mean, it's like the incentives are all in the ideal world. The incentive um, with a coach and player is I'm trying to help you be the best person you can be in life. And I would think, especially in AAU, you know, coach is trying to get picked up by a team as an assistant coach or developmental coach or whatever. Or maybe they luck into that once in a generation player that they can leverage into a assistant coach at a, at a major university, but the incentives are, and you know, a player's just there to try to get looked at and, you know, kids play two, three, four games a day. It's like the incentives are just all messed up. I agree. Where, uh, where's coach Jackson now? So Jackson's retired. Um, mm-hmm. I think she works for a program with um, special needs students in the workforce. Um, but she's retired. Um, okay. I would have right. coached for her for forever, but mm. it was time to move on. All right, let's finish up with some shorter, maybe more fun questions. Who is the best high school men's player to come through Jackson? Oh, my goodness. I mean, that's a difficult question. You almost have to go generational with that thing. Like, I don't know. Listen, I've, okay, let me say this. I've seen Monte. Some of these other ones, like Othello, I hadn't seen, but I have seen Monte. And I have seen Monte shoot it on the Mississippi, Mississippi Sports Medicine logo on the Coliseum floor, okay? And if you don't know where the Mississippi Sports Medicine logo is on the Coliseum floor, it's about two steps from half court. <laughs> and you know what's crazy? I mean, that, that's he's the best high school player I've ever seen, Monte Ellis. So that, that would be my answer, best high school guys player out of Jackson. He, would, he averaged 40 points a game, 40 plus, sophomore, junior, senior year of, college, of high school, sorry. And then he didn't play college, was drafted into the NBA right out of um, Lanier. But he was such a phenomenal 
shooter from, I mean, damn near half court. And I think in the league, he was a below average three-point shooter. Isn't that crazy? I've always wondered about that. I've wondered, you know, from a coach's perspective, I think size may have had something to do with it. He wasn't very tall, um, which you can kind of get away. But, I mean, he could shoot so deep in high school that I just can't see. I mean, I can see size being a factor, but I don't know. I've, I've often wondered what was kind of the, the big difference for him that kind of changed all that. I think college would have helped some, but he was phenomenal coming out of high school, and I didn't think he would have any problem in the NBA. Well, I mean, he, he balled out, you know. He balled out. I, he, I saw him play in high school. It was his senior year. Um, Lou Williams was from Atlanta. I forget what team, what school it was. But they came, and it was like a preseason shootout in, in the Coliseum. And between Lou Williams, who, you know, 15 years later is still in the league, mm-hmm. um, playing for Atlanta now, I think. But between Lou Williams and Monte Ellis, Monte was better in high school in this one game that I saw. Where is Monte Ellis now? Um, I don't even, I don't really know. That's He's a not good around? Question. He's not in Jackson? Thought he got, did he not get picked up by another league team? No, he's not in the league. He's been out of the league for a couple of years. I think he got picked up again. Maybe he's Maybe overseas. overseas. Mm-hmm. Maybe overseas. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, you said you also do features on food. What are your, what are two of your favorite restaurants in Jackson? Oh my goodness, Fine and Dandy. If you have not tried Fine and Dandy in Jackson, Fine and Dandy's. My one of my personal favorites, and I love Iron Horse Grill. Um, I love the atmosphere. I love the food. I love everything about Iron Horse Grill. Um, the atmosphere, probably more than anything. What are your What personal. are your go to orders at both places? Oh my goodness, they're fine and dandy. I think I'm just working my way through the menu. Um, but Iron Horse Grill is definitely stuffed catfish. Mm. That's a hard have. question, though. Man, there are some good restaurants in Jackson. You've got. Keepers, you've got Sally Mookie's, which just moved to the district, by the way. I don't know if you're familiar with the new little district area they built off 55. Mm-hmm. Um, Where is that? It's like right off 55. Once you pass um, the hospital area, like you're heading back towards so a little bit south. Back north. Oh, going north. Back north toward, mm-hmm. okay. right before where Char and all those restaurants are. Oh, yeah. Bravo. Yeah. They've built a little area there. It's got like a hotel, some restaurants, some shops and boutiques. Always, always um, like a little bit of a kind of a funky space. Like, like mm-hmm. you, know, you got some hipsters hanging out there. So that makes yeah. sense. It's really cool. But yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of food in Jackson. Mm. A lot of good food in Jackson. Okay, best player you ever played against? Oh my goodness. Okay, first of all, I'm old. You're not old. You're not I getting older. Old. You're just getting better. Who is that? Rob fan from Ashby County was probably the best female player to come through the Golden Triangle area and was before her time with the WNBA. The girl was the girl was phenomenal. Um, well, she, she's a woman now, but she was phenomenal. Um, I would have loved to have seen her in the WNBA. 
Where does she play uh-huh. college? Jackson State. Mm-hmm. I think she was like swag player of the year. I was say, I mean, she she was she was big time at Jackson State. Nice. Well, let's end there, Miss Jackson. Thank you, as always. This was uh, you're my second returning guest, so it's a very short list. People get invited back. Oh, I hope I get invited back for a third time because there's way more that we can talk about. For sure. There's there's way more that we can. We always have great convos and, and lots of stuff to talk about. So for sure. Always, always. Well, thank you for having me back. Yep. Tell the people where they can find your work, please. They can find my work at um, www.authory.com forward slash Torchita Jackson or on Facebook at Torshita Jackson Freelance. Fantastic. Ms. Jackson, thank you very much. Looking forward to our third interview sooner than later. Anytime, my friend. This is Ben Guest, and you can find all my work at benbo.substack.com. That's benbo.substack.com. Have a great day.